Namaste, namaskaram, vanakam, namo namaha. Back to the American Dream, Waking Up, Chapter 5, Women. And auspiciously, today happens to be May 9th, or Mother's Day in the Western world, which is also celebrated around the world in many countries. And this is a perfect time, especially for Hindus, to realize uh, the wisdom of not using the Christian term God. This is not Father's Day, this is Mother's Day. God is not a female, God is a male. There is an Anglo-Saxon word for the female, and that is goddess. And remember that this Anglo-Saxon term, Germanic in origin, refers to a one male creator being, and this term did not exist prior to seven, eight hundred years ago. Therefore, literally, God did not exist prior to that. And it's important that Hindus especially do not misuse this Christian term, God. So let's look at the treatment of women and the sanction of that by the Christian religion. In this chapter, we quote from Beyond God the Father by Mary Daly Towards a Philosophy of Women's Liberation, Beacon Press, 1973. We also quote from Thomas Sheehan's The First Coming, as well as Robert James Walder, The Bridges of Madison County, Warner Books, 1992. Chapter 5, Women. We are caught in an illusion, a dream, when we are repeatedly exposed to a set of attitudes and beliefs that are never clearly thought out, but rather simply taken for granted at face value. In this state of mind, there are a few problems as long as one remains in the group of believers. However, when one encounters an individual or group with a different set of attitudes and beliefs, the potential for violence is present. We have seen how certain Christian beliefs were responsible for much of the violence against the Native Americans and blacks. These races were viewed by many Christians to be, quote, naturally, unquote, inferior to whites, and therefore were to be dominated and subdued. However, there has also been another class of humans, regardless of color or nationality, that have suffered from erroneous beliefs of, quote, natural inferiority, unquote, women. And just as a side note, it's very interesting that in today's spurious yoga movement, it is spearheaded by women. Obviously, there are a lot of men that are responsible for these distortions, but many women, unfortunately, are taking up the mantle of actually distorting the Hindu yogas and actually subduing the Hindus. Very interesting. And so many women are actually falling prey to some of the worst stereotypes of the female who can't really think critically. All one has to say is, hey, Google define yoga, and the Hindu connection will clearly be there. And also the stereotypical uh, woman's infatuation with the body, Men also, of course, but the infatuation with the body and clothing, etc., which has permeated this spurious yoga culture. So back to chapter 5. The early church fathers that crafted the Bible, church doctrine, and related scriptures took the story of Adam and Eve very seriously. These crafty recorders of Christian mythology had very strong opinions about women based on the Eden story. St. Augustine... 354 to 430 CE, 
who was one of the most prominent early church fathers, who also reportedly has several concubines before his conversion, stated that, quote, women were not born in the image of God, end quote. Another of the early church fathers, Tertullian, who was considered a, quote, unique genius of Latin Christianity, end quote, put his position concerning women bluntly when he said, quote, you, women, are the devil's gateway. How easily you destroyed man, the image of God. Because of the death which you brought upon us, even the Son of God had to die, end quote. Talk about classic denial. So, in other words, the man wasn't strong enough to resist the temptation? Pretty silly story. Thomas Aquinas, the Dominican friar, who helped clarify the Christian sacraments, defined women as, quote, misbegotten males, unquote. Martin Luther stated, quote, God created Adam, Lord over all living creatures, but Eve spoiled it all, end quote. Again, masculine denial. Perhaps there were many others who helped formulate the doctrine of the emerging young cult of Christianity, like Origen, who was considered one of the most influential Christian theologians, theologians, excuse me. This early church father concentrated on figuring out the doctrinal relations of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Seems he also decided to castrate himself, apparently so that women and sexual feelings would not interfere with his, quote, spiritual progress, unquote. The early church fathers, who of course denounced their parents as pagans, formulated the apostles and the Nicene creeds and thus established that God is male, and his only son, of course, is also male. Thereafter, the justification, just as other scriptural references were used against Native Americans, blacks, and non-Christians in general, for the subjugation of women was proclaimed as part of God's plan. Of course, as many are becoming aware, and not only within the Christian church, such exclusions have little to do with anything divine, certainly God, but rather these are concoctions of, shall we say, less than together males with motives inspired more by personal and organizational power. Though change is evident, not a lot has changed for women and others who do not fit the ideal. In the eyes of the Christian church and elsewhere, as religious beliefs, consciously or unconsciously, carry over into other areas of society's life. Many religious leaders continue to surmise that, since Jesus was male, women cannot be ordained. To be fair, the Episcopal Church is setting a fine example by finally admitting women into the priesthood. Or is it priestesshood? One can only hope that these women who have been denied access for centuries will awaken to many other forms of Christian exclusiveness rather than simply becoming clones of their former repressors. Until recently, in much of Christendom, any boy could serve at the altar, while that same service was denied any female regardless of her social status. To further exemplify this confused attempt to distance the female, it has only been in this century that, believe it or not, left-handed men were admitted into the Catholic priesthood. Left-handedness was often associated with the female and thus, to some, devious. Look it up in the dictionary.
This is an interesting psychological point to ponder, especially considering that many priests have been coming out of some rather unorthodox closets. Just as biblical passages were used to deny full status to non-Christians, God's word, quote-unquote, naturally subordinated women. Leviticus chapter 12 also declared a woman unclean after giving birth and decreed a period of cleansing. One week for a boy and, of course, two weeks for a girl. During this time, the unclean women must not touch any hallowed thing or come into the sanctuary. In a strange twist, it appears that the Creator seemed to deem birth a sin as women after her cleansing period, were commanded to bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed by the priest to atone for her sin. The Garden, Witches, and Other Creations The patriarchal myth of the Garden of Eden clearly established a male-dominated society. However, as author H.R. Hayes noted, quote, The fall of man should rightly be called the fall of women, because once more the second sex is blamed for all the trouble in the world. Unquote. From the beginning of the Judeo-Christian mythology, women were viewed as the temptress, as the early church fathers put so eloquently. Author Elizabeth Cady Stanton points out, quote, Take the snake, the fruit tree, and the woman from the scene, and we have no fall, no frowning judge, no inferno, no everlasting punishment, hence no need for a Savior. Thus the bottom falls out of the whole Christian theology. Here is the reason why, in all the biblical researches and higher criticism, the scholars never touch the position of women, end quote. It appears that many Christians looked fervently for evil and sin for this justified perpetuating the belief in Jesus as the one and only male Savior. Therefore, everything non-Christian became heathen and pagan, and concerning women in the Middle Ages, this bias produced witch mania. Though there were instances of accusations of witchcraft by jealous women against other women, it appeared that witches were primarily seen as a threat to the supremacy of Christianity and the priesthood. Non-Christian women who took on the role of healers, midwives, and spiritual advisors were seen as competitive threats. This threat was exemplified by two 15th-century Dominican priests, Sprenger and Kramer, who wrote, quote, It is women who are chiefly addicted to evil superstitions. All witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which in women is insatiable, unquote. These, quote, spiritual leaders, unquote, also noted that midwives are the most wicked of all. They also pointed out that men are absolved from such wickedness because Jesus was a man. Some estimate that the number of witches burned at the stake varied from 30,000 to several million, and the tests to determine if one was a witch were, as we have seen in chapter 1, a no-win situation for the accused. It is interesting to note as Margaret Murray points out, that when healing or spiritual inspiration was given in a non-Christian setting, it was called witchcraft, while the same was called divine healing and prophecy by the Christian. 
in concocting the notion that God was exclusively male, remember there's a female term, goddess, and that his son was, of course, male, and further the savior for the entire world, Christianity set the stage for not only male domination, but Christian supremacy. The great American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson commented on this ludicrousness, quote, Historical Christianity has fallen into the error that corrupts all attempts to communicate religion. It has dwelt, it dwells with noxious exaggeration about the person of Jesus, end quote. This is not to in any way dismiss that certainly Yeshua, who was later renamed Jesus, the Christian, like countless others from many cultures, had an intimate and profound relationship with what he called actually Abba, The point is that among those who formulated the Christian doctrine, there was obviously a move to gain world dominance and personal as well as organizational power. For example, Eusebius, one of the earliest Christian historians, noted, quote, we shall introduce into this history, which meant the establishment of Christianity, along with the empire of Constantine, after which the obscure cult gained political clout, We shall introduce, in general, only those events which may be useful first to ourselves and afterwards to posterity. This move, one could say, to play God, and thus attempt to dictate to the world the way things should be, amounted to what Mary Daly termed, quote, a cosmic false naming. The myth takes on cosmic proportions, since the male's viewpoint is metamorphosed into God's viewpoint. Implied in the colossal misnaming of evil is the misnaming of women, of men, of God. Quote. The scapegoat. It is ironic, and more than a bit paradoxical, that Jesus became for many Christians, as Thomas Saz, sorry for the pronunciation, S-Z-A-S-Z, points out, quote, in mankind's most illustrious scapegoat. In setting up Jesus as the model figure, many Christians, instead of looking for their own experience of God, as they would call it, or divinity, within themselves, as Jesus apparently did, remember he was called Yeshua, the Jewish rabbi, They turned their failure to accomplish this difficult inner spiritual task into a disdain at best for those who did not worship the model. One can even see perhaps a serious miscarriage of spiritual justice as Yeshua, the Aramaic-speaking Jew who apparently never wrote anything down, became the very chief victim of this hoax. Apparently, Unbeknownst to him, Yeshua had his name changed to Jesus by others, and certainly his religion, to Christianity, some 20 years after his death. And further, as Thomas Sheehan points out, that he was given two titles, Lord and Christ, neither of which he had dared to give himself, or even knew. Remember, he spoke Aramaic. One has to wonder how the young Yeshua would have felt knowing his name as well as his religion and language had been changed posthumously. It is interesting to note the development of the religion of Christianity. It appears that the early Aramaic-speaking Jews that followed the charismatic young prophet Yeshua 
felt that after his death he would return to earth as the long-awaited Messiah. Of course, as the years went by and Yeshua, now called Jesus, failed to return, the Greek-speaking Jews, surely to keep the young cult alive, made the proclamation that Jesus was not the Messiah designate, but the already reigning Messiah in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Finally, the Greek-speaking Gentiles, to give the ultimate thrust of establishing Christian world dominance, proclaimed that not only was Jesus currently reigning in heaven, but also, paradoxically, was the ultimate Godhead from which he was also born. Looking to the Eden story again, women in general became the primordial earthly scapegoat for the, quote, religious, unquote, men who couldn't seem to get their spiritual act together. And thus they cast blame for their own shortcomings, classic denial syndrome, onto women. And of course, earlier onto Native Americans, blacks, and non-Christians. And thus a situation developed where women too were biblically and subsequently legally denied equal rights. Of course, times have changed somewhat. True, women can vote as of the 1920s, and there's more equality in the workplace However, there is still, as many women realize, a long way to go. For example, many women are beginning to speak out about such things as being charged more than men for basically the same consumer products. Many women attest to the fact that they pay more than a man for an identical automobile. Many women are still chronically paid less than a man for rendering the same services in the marketplace. Many women who are homemakers feel guilty and are made to feel guilty, often by other women, about spending their husband's money when they are performing just as vital a task, if not more considering the highly responsible task of raising children the next generation. Of course, in the past, and presently in some countries, women in America could not own property. They could not sit on juries or even sue when they were blatantly taken advantage of. One has to ask oneself, why this discrimination? It should be obvious by now that one must look into the primary beliefs that are instilled in all of us from birth. And in America, one must look to Christian indoctrination as playing a major role in the formulation of these beliefs, their resultant attitudes and actions. The Boss Syndrome belief produces attitudes, produces actions. By naively claiming to know that God is a man, Christianity set up the mindset that being manly is the goal that all should aspire to. This is tragic, in that a person who denies their passive and gentle nature is a candidate for all manner of prejudicial thinking, if not perhaps ulcers, high blood pressure, and certainly repressed emotions. How many fathers, for example, wishing for a son, have begun molding their daughters into their own image with comments like, you throw like a girl. Even many women have apparently fallen into this trap and have opted for becoming manly in order to gain their rightful place. And subsequently, these women, too, look down on things feminine. (laughs) Go figure. Jane Mills, in her book, Woman Words, looks at the remarkable number of words used in contemporary English language that are used to put down women, i.e. nag, battle-axe, spinster, bag, tart, bitch, filly, hussy, jezebel, trollop, peace, 
winch, and about 300 more words specifically directed at putting down the female. On the other hand, one just cannot find the equivalent of this nonsense directed towards men. Naturally, for men are created in the image of God. Or, should we more say created in the image of men? Just as God is. And even in the term, son of a bitch, which many men use on each other, it is the female that is ultimately denigrated. Even the derogatory word weird, that is a favorite among those who refuse to see beyond themselves, comes from an old English reference to the pagan goddesses called the weirds, W-Y-R-D-S. Another example of this proclivity towards dominance and male superiority that has too often been the hallmark of Christianity and related cults and sects is Deborah Lakey's book, Secret Ceremonies, in which she reveals her life in the male-dominated Mormon religion. Lakey tells of her excommunication for speaking out against the repressive role of women in the church and in her exclusion by the church's high council. The men involved proclaimed that they were merely confirming the Lord's decision. In her book, Lakey describes the Mormon attitude that considers the male clergy to have, quote, nearly unlimited authority to act for God on earth, end quote. And these men are destined to, quote, become gods who rule entire worlds, end quote. One of the most detrimental attitudes that has resulted from this perverted male position, directly or indirectly, implied in many of the world's religious scriptures, are the numerous instances of sexual harassment that almost every woman will testify to being a victim of at some time in her life. To say nothing of the most violent form of sexual harassment, the continued violence of rape, Ironically, Christianity has fostered in many ways the rape mentality, which is essentially any blind act of abuse of another fully justified in the mind of the abuser, thus killing the dignity of both parties. We have already discussed the rape of the gentle people that Columbus encountered, as well as the rape of the Native Americans and blacks, all biblically justified, but it may come as a surprise to many to know that the physical rape of women seems to be indirectly condoned in, quote, God's word, unquote, and even perhaps directly sanctioned. It should come as little surprise that the rape of women in the act of war are too often simultaneous occurrences. War being a deadly form of rape, with women often becoming the booty of the instinctive lust fueled by the killing mentality. Presently, we see the rape of Muslim women by the Bosnian Serbs. Remember, this is 1993. In the continuing atrocities in the former Yugoslavia. One has to wonder if these Christians have been influenced, perhaps, by biblical stories such as Numbers 31. One reads in Numbers 31 where Moses is being instructed by the Lord to war on the Midianites, to kill men, male children, and women who have known a man. However, the virgin girls can be taken as booty, verses 17 and 18. Or one can read the rather kinky story of the Levite and his concubine, Judges 19, in which there seems to be no problem with giving a group of thugs a virgin girl. 
rather than having a male guest known by the intruders. Or when the girl is refused and the Levite instead offers up his concubine, who the thugs subsequently know and abuse her all the night, verses 23 and 25. Or when the abused, now dead concubine is chopped up by her former master into 12 pieces, verses 29 and sent as a vivid example of what those sons of Belial's did. The war and rape mentality has too often been displayed by many of American political leaders as well. For example, Governor Ronald Reagan at a 1972 $1,000 plate Nixon campaign dinner stated, quote, When you go to a John Wayne movie, when you buy the ticket, you know he's going to clobber the bad guy, but it's pretty exciting, end quote. Charles Henderson, in his book, The Nixon Theology, points out that, quote, God is an American, and Nixon is his anointed one, unquote. And that the preachers that delivered sermons at the White House emphasized, quote, that this is a nation under God, thus American policy must be right, end quote. This leap of faith is exactly what the Christian doctrine has been founded upon. Unfortunately, this has too often turned out to be more of a leap of blind belief that has wreaked havoc on all the others. Joan of Arc was a good example of this contradiction. Joan was probably a member of the Dianetic, Dian, Dian, Dionic cult that believed that God could manifest as a woman. Dianic, sorry. Any matriarchal religion was, of course, seen as a threat to patriarchal Christianity, and therefore Joan was burned at the stake as a heretic. After which she was safely out of the way, she was canonized as a saint. To be sure, one could find many instances of perverted male domination in many of the world's religions, it's not exclusive to Christianity, as well as this misnaming of God. Naming of God is not the issue, but concretizing a specific name and form to the exclusion of all others, which amounts to idol worship, is. This problem of woman bashing, however subtle, by some men, is ironically too often initiated and perpetuated by the inevitable priesthoods that form and the resultant theologies and doctrines. Though, of course, there are many fine priests, perhaps hoods, is often the proper suffix to describe the often criminal and secretive exclusive associations that are sometimes formed. However, it may come as a surprise to some to know that one can also find in many religions, past and present, the divine, mislabeled God, represented by a female form as well as even a male-female form. For example, the Egyptian goddess Isis, the Greek Aphrodite, the Roman Vesta, Ishtar, the Semitic goddess of fertility, Ebona, the Celtic goddess. In the Shinto religion, there is Tezuki Yomi, the moon goddess, the Zoroastrian goddess of water, Anahita. Even in early Judaism, one finds a female deity, Astarte. In pre Islamic Arabia, one finds the mother goddess, Al Hat. The American Indians indeed worship the whole earth as a mother goddess. In Hinduism, of course, we find numerous female deities, Kali, Durga, Parvati, Mahalakshmi, Saraswati, to name a few. 
In the androgynous Hindu deity Shiva Shakti or Arjunadashvara, one even finds the concept that the divine is equally male and female. Of course, when we discuss gods and goddesses, we enter a whole other realm of discussion. But very simply, the concept behind gods and goddesses is that. Obviously, if God is truly omnipresent, then everything is a manifestation of this God. Then various gods and goddesses then become, on one level, simply a descriptive way of seeing the divine everywhere. Even the Judeo-Christian tradition, which tries to distance itself from this approach by claiming one God, must admit that it is basically no different in that the biblical God and Jesus are also referred to by many descriptive names. For example, Abraham called God El Shaddai, the Mighty One. El was a term for the many deities, Elohim. Moses and his people referred to God as Yahweh. Yahweh is also referred to as Jehovah, the Alpha, the Omega, the Father, the Almighty. Yeshua, also known as Jesus, called this divinity Abba, Papa. Jesus himself is referred to as the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley, the Lamb, Christ, the Messiah, which was actually a very common term for that era for any Davidic king. And the king was also given the title of Son of God or Son of the Messiah. This equating of a king with divinity is, of course, common in many cultures. Even the early apostles Mark, Luke, and John were given descriptive names for their unique character traits, i.e. the lion, ox, and eagle, respectively. Even Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, found no problem with the use of numerous names to describe the obviously universal and all-encompassing experience which some people refer to as God. The legitimate powers of government, quote, extend to such acts only as are injurious to others, but it does me no injury for my neighbors to say there are twenty gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. End quote. From the Life and Selected Writings of Thomas Jefferson. Therefore, though the phrase God is one may be valid from an absolute mystical perspective, relative reality necessitates and many. The complete phrase, then, God is one and many, demonstrates the understanding of the meaning behind the word omnipresent. It also shows an appreciation for the universal and similar use of religious symbolism to help to define, perhaps, the indefinable. The Christian tradition, however, seems to have a very difficult time recognizing the obvious and many part of the equation, much less that, quote, God, unquote, can also be female. And if we entertain as God as male and female together, then a whole homophobic can of worms is open. However, the spiritual female and male in touch with their compassionate nature, at the very least, intuit otherwise. Thus, God's word, quote-unquote, in many cases, may be the supreme illusion of some men's repressions and desires, long-repressed fears, and other emotions, as well as desires for dominance or delusions of grandeur, D-O-G. God backwards. Grand old delusion? In classic denial, or the inability to face what is within, could we gain some insight into the reason why many Christians see evils all around them? Could the classic denial syndrome be a subconscious motive behind the frightening notion by many of gays in the military? Anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that the attitude towards the opposite sect in general, 
reducing them to little more than sexual objects. Perhaps many of these same macho men, and perhaps women, consciously or unconsciously, fear that they will now become the objects of desire. Has the homosexual, as one journalist noted, gone from poof to predator? Could denial be the reason, for example, for the strong stand against humanism by many fundamental Christians, in that many of these same Christians are unconsciously creating God in their own image? In this attempt to not only claim to know God, but to also know God's sex, God's word, and thus God's will, a potentially dangerous cultic posture is created. With this kind of spiritual ego, the absurd becomes commonplace and unquestioned. For example, to postulate that woman, Eve, came from man, Adam, Genesis 2, 22 and 23, we thus have, as Mary Daly points out, quote, Adam, the first among history's unmarried pregnant males, consequently obtaining a child bride, end quote. This, in what amounts to the creating of God in man's image, results in, as Mary Daly again so eloquently describes, a looking-glass society, where women become the magnifying mirrors, and some men, unable to face their own depravity, might one day be forced to take a long, hard look within. Quote, Males would find other horrors, all of the others. The whole crowd would be in there. The lazy niggers, the dirty Chicanos, the greedy Jews, faggots, dykes, plus the entire crowd of communists and the backward population of the third world. What to do for relief? Send more bombing missions? But no. It is pointless to be killing the enemy after you find out the enemies yourself. But the looking glass society is still there. Bent on killing itself off, it is still ruled by God the Father, who, gazing at his magnified reflections, believe in his superior size. We have been locked in this Eden of his for far too long. End quote. Even the fictional man, Robert Kincaid, in the bridges over Madison County, recognized the problem. Quote, the curse of modern time is the preponderance of male hormone in places where they can do long-term damage, end quote. Thus ends Chapter 5, Women. Join us for Chapter 6 and explore the beef culture in America and the unnecessary exploitation of animals.